If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. All right, let's talk about the province's crackdown on Airbnb and other short-term rentals now. The major restriction here, Airbnb operators uh, will only be allowed to rent out their primary residence, such as a, a secondary suite in their own house. You could not own separate investment properties and operate them like full-time hotel rooms. Some exceptions for resort communities like ski hills, for example. Okay, did the government go too far here? Now, I've got the housing minister standing by to discuss. Have a listen to this here now. BC United MLA, Corinne Kirkpatrick here. She's been a guest on the show on this topic. Now he said, she said, look, we need some exceptions. We need to loosen up these restrictions, especially during major tourism events like the World Cup coming to Vancouver. Have a listen to her here. We know that we don't have enough hotel space and accommodation space in British Columbia and certainly in Vancouver uh, to allow us to host world-class events. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Ravi Kalon, British Columbia's housing minister. Minister, thanks for coming on today. Hey, Mike, thanks so much for having me. Okay, now we got you. All right, now we're in business here. Okay, minister, let's talk first of all about major tourism events. Okay, so you got Corinne Kirkpatrick, the BC United MLA. We just played a clip of her saying, look, we don't have any hotel rooms or not enough available for things like the World Cup. Just checked online for the Taylor Swift shows next December in Vancouver. All the hotels already sold out. Minister, could you lighten up on these restrictions during major tourism events like the opposition is suggesting? What about that idea? Well, Mike, uh, you know, it is a challenge that we're going to need to increase our capacity of hotels uh, for folks for major events. No doubt that's uh, going to be something that needs to happen. But the suggestion they're making is just ridiculous. I mean, imagine uh, if their policy was in place and all of a sudden you have people kicking out their long term rentals. Uh, because they want to make a buck off of, uh, you know, a, a couple week event or a one night event. I mean, the suggestion uh, in reality is is just ridiculous. Uh, and so, no, it's not a credible uh, solution. What we do need to do is build up our hotel capacities. Uh, and also, Mike, it's important to note that Airbnbs are still going to be here. They're still going to be available for people in our communities to address the challenges we have. Okay, but I just went online and checked the hotel availability for the Taylor Swift shows next December in Vancouver. Basically, there are no hotels available. <laughs> Everything's already booked up more than a year in advance. Isn't that a problem? Well, th this is the uh, Taylor uh, Swift uh, phenomenon. Every time she goes to a town, within seconds, the hotels book out. Uh, that's just uh, the, uh, the attention that she brings to communities. But, uh, Mike, it's important to note is, A, 
there are short-term rentals still available. We haven't banned them completely. What we've said is yeah. if you buy in multiple homes, investments, and you're putting them just for short-term rentals, what we're saying is we need those homes back for people desperately need them in our communities. So short-term rentals will be available. Now, what we've also seen, Mike, in other jurisdictions across Canada is when major events happen, uh, the, the market does respond. So I'll give you an example. In Calgary, when the Calgary Stampede happens, what happens is a lot of people were like, I don't want to be around the Calgary Stampede. It's just a lot of people. It's too crazy. I'm going to leave this weekend uh, and I'm just going to do uh, use VRBO or whatever uh, while I'm away. And so what they see is a sudden increase in units available where people are like, I'm just going to get out of town because I don't like the craziness. So that mm -hmm. kind of uh, um, balancing happens in every community when major events happen. When the World Cup happens, I guarantee you, Mike, there's going to be people who are going to say, this is crazy. I don't like soccer. I'm going to leave. I'm not going to be one of them because I love soccer, <laughs> but there's going to be other people who do say that. Okay, that's, an in that's a really interesting point. Let me ask you about the other idea that BC United here, the opposition, has put on the table, and that's, well, let people have one, okay? Just let people have one investment property on the side. You're not going to be running dozens of hotel rooms, pseudo-hotel rooms. You just have one. You know, just have one on the side. What do you think of that idea? Well, Mike, uh, if a person has a home and they have a suite in their home, they're allowed one. Uh, but what what uh, the opposition? I mean, I mean one. I mean one that's not your principal residence. So you could rent out part of your home, or you could rent out your principal property or principal residence on Airbnb. That's allowed. But the opposition is saying, let them have one other one, one other one on the side. Yeah, I mean, uh, the argument they're making is fundamentally against the policy we have. What we're saying is, if you have a home, you have a suite, you can use it for Airbnb. But we don't want people buying investment properties. We've seen a mic just last year alone, we saw a 20% increase where investors are buying homes and putting them only for short-term rental, which decreases the housing availability of people in our community. So, you know, the policy is like, well, let's have, let them have one investment property. And then maybe we'll let them have two investment properties. We're right back to where we were. What we ultimately need is for those folks that have a home that have extra suite yeah go ahead use it for short-term rental but what we don't want to see is folks coming in with investments just buying up homes all over uh, british columbia and using them for short-term rental when we have families that are living in rvs because they can't find a place to rent and so in a housing crisis mike this is the type of action we need uh and uh and it's unfortunate that uh the opposition doesn't quite understand the need for getting homes for people they're more worried about taylor swift fans uh and them being able to see a concert speaking of housing minister ravi kalon i've heard from some airbnb operators minister and i know you you have as well who say this was kind of sprung on me uh there was no advance advance warning here or very little advance warning i bought an investment property in good faith now the government has come along and changed the rules on me i got a ton of money tied up in these in this property have a listen to victoria condo owner here zoltan soges here he bought a condo in victoria to rent it out on airbnb now that the rules have been changed he's trying to sell it he says he's having difficulty unloading it now here he's talking to check news here let's have a listen they've all walked away every single person who was looking at our unit was looking at it for short-term investment so we've dropped our price by fifty thousand dollars i just don't support taking people's land rights away from them when there's direct financial consequences for it minister what do you say to that argument that people bought an investment property in good faith and then the rules have been changed on them and they haven't been grandfathered in what do you think of that argument 
Well, Mike, uh, we purposely built in time for people to either rent their properties, uh, those that have bookings to have continued their bookings, uh, and those that want to sell to have time to sell. Uh, you know, I, I, I think it's a little hypothetical for people to say, uh, my property, well, I bought it for this, my value is this, and I'm going to have to sell it for a certain price. So far, the indication we have is that we've seen some units already go on sale. People are now getting an opportunity to buy their first home because these market units are coming uh, back on the market. But I think it's too early to say that all of a sudden everyone's lost all their money. What we're saying to folks is you have time. You have till the end of May. Make a decision. Go to, you know, rent it for the long term market. You can still get that revenue that you desperately uh, need to maintain yeah. the property. But if it's not going to work for you, you have lots of time to offload that property. Minister, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike, and uh, be safe. Okay, let's talk about this escalating battle over the carbon tax now. And this one was on the floor of the House of Commons yesterday. Dramatic vote on the carbon tax on Parliament Hill. Got NDP MP Peter Julian standing by to discuss now first let's go back to how this all started so prime minister justin trudeau he announced that pause on home heating oil uh, carbon tax no carbon tax on home heating oil the politics of this is so transparent it's not funny it's aimed directly at atlantic canada where people that's where people use home heating oil he is just crashing in the opinion polls there. What about everybody else? What about people who use natural gas to heat their homes? Would he give them a carbon tax break as well? Trudeau was asked about that the other day. Here was his response. There will absolutely not be any other carve-outs or suspensions of the price on pollution. Okay, he's very firm on that. Absolutely not. No one else is going to get a break on the federal carbon tax. This was put to a vote in the House of Commons yesterday, a Conservative Party motion to extend a carbon tax break to all forms of home heating fuels. And the Liberal government, they, they beat that they beat that vote. They won the vote. So how'd that happen? The federal liberals did a tag team with the Bloc Québécois, the Bloc Québécois voting with the liberals here to defeat this carbon tax motion. Listen to Pierre Polyev on this yesterday, the federal conservative leader. And who was there to save him? The separatists. Well, he's now signed on with the separatists to divide Canadians into two separate classes. Those who will have to pay carbon tax on their home heat and a small minority who will get a pause from the pain. Okay, federal NDP MPs did vote to bring fairness to this carbon tax issue. Uh, give it a break on all home heating fuels. Let's check in with Peter Julian now, NDP MP for New Westminster Burnaby. And I'm always pleased to welcome him. Peter, thank you for coming on today. My, my pleasure, Mike. Good to be with you again. Okay, yeah, likewise. Thanks for doing it. So let's talk about the events in the House of Commons yesterday. Uh, why did the federal NDP vote in this manner to extend this carbon tax cut to all home heating fuels? They were t doing teaming up with the Conservatives here. What was the rationale for doing that? Well, well first off, uh, Mr. Trudeau just was inventing policy uh, uh, on the back of a napkin two weeks ago when they, he decided to take off... Uh, 
the, the, the carbon price on heating oil when it only impacts Atlantic Canada. And I, I think right across the country, there's been understandable reaction. The conservative motion that was defeated uh, left BC out. In fact, we tried to amend the motion by making it, uh, taking off the GST, which has about the same impact and would apply to British Columbia as, as well as Quebec and the Northwest Territories that aren't affected by the federal price on carbon. And so the Conservatives refused that, which meant that BC was still uh, left out. Today, we are presenting uh, the, the more adult motion, which takes the GST off all home heating right across the country and, and also puts in place a program for heat pumps. Uh, because that is uh, what is smart for the environment and ultimately is the direction Canada needs to go on, to be paid for by an excess profits tax on the oil and gas sector. As you know, oil and gas uh, CEOs are making money hand over fist, over $38 billion in profits uh, last year. And so what we're we're doing is is paying for the program, ensuring people can uh, transition to something that's environmentally smarter, but above all, taking the GST off home heating right across the country, which has an impact in BC, which I think both Liberals and Conservatives have forgotten about. Okay, that's very interesting. What about climate change? Some people have expressed surprise that the New Democrats are now calling for tax cuts on fossil fuels at a time when climate change is supposed to be a top priority for your party. How do you rationalize that? Well, that's why the heat pump program is so important. The the Liberals say they talk a a game about having a heat pump program, uh, as we indicated in the House this morning. Uh, They've only put a few hundred uh, heat pumps into people's homes. And at this rate, it would take 55,000 years to actually <laughs> ensure that all Canadian families have access to a heat pump. So they've, they've really failed, which is why the, the important thrust of the NDP motion is to ensure that, uh, that low-income and middle-class Canadians, including in British Columbia, have access to, uh, to heat pumps because they'll, they'll save, of course, on energy costs, but it also is very helpful for the environment. So it's, a, it's, it's, it's essentially recognizing that people are struggling to make ends meet right now. Taking the GST off, off existing home heating sources makes sense, saves people money. But ensuring with the excess profits tax that we're paying for heat pumps for folks who want to convert and save even more money and help the environment, it's a smart overall program. And it's, it's something that we're hoping all members of parliament will support when the vote comes up tomorrow. Okay, that's very interesting. Now, on the subject of heat pumps, right now in British Columbia, if you do transition to a heat pump, there are rebates available. So there are incentives in place now to convince people to switch to a heat pump, especially if you're switching over from natural gas to an electric heat pump. There's some pretty good rebates available there. Are you saying those are not generous enough? Uh, I'm saying the provincial government's gonna, done a good job, but uh, um, okay. Taylor Backrack, who's uh, the, the MP for Skeena Bulkley Valley, uh, excellent MP, very strong, and, and he led off talking about the case of one of his constituents, Perry, who's been trying to access the federal program and for a year and a half now, he's been going back and forth because uh, the federal government simply doesn't want to give him that rebate. And that's why we want to make sure heat pumps are accessible to people in B.C. and right across the country. Uh, the Liberals have talked a, a good game, but they haven't walked the talk and they haven't put into place an effective program that ensures that families can access it. And that's what we want to change. We want to make sure that it's a program that actually works for people and that they can, they can access the heat pumps without having to wait for years to actually get the money back that they've invested. 
Speaking of Peter Julian, NDPMP, New Westminster, Burnaby. Peter, I spoke to the Environment Minister, Stephen Gilbo, on the show earlier this week, the Federal Environment Minister. We talked about this issue, and I asked him, why is his government bringing in a, a carbon tax break only on home heating oil? What about everybody else? What about fundamental fairness? Listen to how he frames it here. I want to play the answer for you, get your thoughts. So this is Stephen Gilbo, the federal environment minister, speaking to me on an earlier show. Why did his government exempt home heating oil from the carbon tax? Here's his answer. It is two to four times more expensive than, than natural gas. And because of what's happening in, in Ukraine and all around the world, the price of home heating oil has skyrocketed three times faster than what we've seen for other forms of, of fuel. So there was a specific issue with, with home heating oil that we're not seeing as pronounced with, with, with other form of, uh, of home heating. Okay, so he says it's because home heating oil is so expensive. That's why they're giving this tax break. Peter Julian, your thoughts? Well, that's a better answer that he gave in the House uh, earlier in the week, where they they tried to pretend that they took uh, the price on carbon off of heating oil because it 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 essentially has a, a, it has a, it it emits more carbon, which made no sense what? at all. Why would you give an incentive for a product that actually produces more greenhouse gas emissions? So I, I guess they've tightened up their message, but it's still. Uh, it's still a complete complete chaos, really, that they're making up these kinds of policies on the back of a napkin. They didn't advise the pro- provinces. They didn't advise parliamentarians. They just thought this would be a great idea. Mr. Trudeau obviously thought it would be a great idea to have this press conference with all of the Atlantic Canadian MPs behind him without thinking of any of the implications. And that's why uh, Jagmeet Singh and the NDP have stepped up with the motion today uh, that's being debated all day to really ensure that we know how to pay for this program that we can ensure that people get heat pumps and that we can uh, cause some relief for folks through the course of this winter with their heating by taking the GST right off home heating, regardless of the source. That's extremely important. And and as I say, uh, if folks are listening, they they should be telling their their MPs from British Columbia to vote for this motion. Okay, there's been a, a national backlash against what Trudeau has done here, this carve-out on the federal carbon tax only for home heating oil. The politics of, of this, I think, is quite obvious and, and brazen, now, especially when you look at other provinces where very few people use home heating oil. Less than 2% of households in British Columbia use this to heat their homes. Most use natural gas. It's similar to other Western provinces. Peter, let me play a clip here for you. Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe, just like British Columbia, a lot of people using natural gas there to heat their homes. He says this is unfair to exempt only home heating oil, and he says he's going to do something about it. Let's listen, then I'll get your thoughts. I am calling on the federal government to offer the same carbon tax exemption to Saskatchewan families by extending it to all forms of home heating. If not, effective January the 1st, Sask Energy will stop collecting and submitting the carbon tax on natural gas. Okay, how do you like that, Justin Trudeau? He says, I won't collect your carbon tax here in Saskatchewan on home heating oil. Peter, what do you think of that? Can he do that? Is that legal? I, I, I that, that I think is, uh, we'll, we'll have to see, but the, the yeah. reality is the, why, the reason why the NDP is offering GST everywhere, including Saskatchewan, including British Columbia, the net impact actually in Saskatchewan is bigger uh, than 
than uh, what Mr. Mo is is proposing. So w- mm. what we are really hoping to see is that uh, everybody come together. Parliamentarians need to be thinking of the national interest. It does not make sense to have, uh, as Mr. Trudeau decided, having um, one region benefiting from a policy that 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 was put into place uh, suddenly and in, in an improvised way. It doesn't make sense with Mr. Polyev to exclude BC and the Northwest Territories and Quebec, which is the problem with the motion that they tabled. That since they refused the NDP amendment, yeah. the the motion today from the NDP actually ensures that everybody has access to to be able to heat their home in the wintertime will make a difference. Uh, We still have to push hard on affordability for affordable housing, for example. But but this is something that will make a difference in people's lives through this cold winter. And that's why we've proposed it today and we're hoping folks will support it. Okay, when when you say the Conservatives have have left out British Columbia here, now, just so the listeners know, that is because British Columbia has, we have our own provincial carbon tax, the federal carbon tax, therefore, does not apply here. So if Trudeau was to tinker more with the federal carbon tax, you're saying what that, that wouldn't apply? That would not apply here, but your GST cut would. Correct. Yes, ab- absolutely. And, and that's why we tried to amend the conservative motion that Mr. Polyev refused. But be, we wanted to make sure that all provinces were covered, including B.C. And inexplicably, yeah. Mr. Mr. Polyev said no to that. Uh, we still voted for the motion because it did provide some supports to other provinces. Well, who were why, excluded. Why, why but not? our motion is a lot better. Oh, well, Peter, Peter, why not ask David Eby, the NDP premier here in British Columbia, to take off the, the, the provincial carbon tax on home heating fuels then? Would you be willing to do that? But the, what David Eby has been calling for is, is to have a heat pump program nationally, and we're yeah. supporting that call as well. But this, the, taking the GST off right across the country makes sense, and that's why we're hoping members of Parliament will be supportive. Thank you for your time today on this. I appreciate it. Always good to speak to you, Mike. Thanks so much. Let's talk about the epidemic of drug overdose deaths in British Columbia. The overdose death rate continues to rise. Since the overdose death crisis was declared a public health emergency in British Columbia, that happened in 2016, there have been more than 13,000 people in British Columbia, have died from toxic drug overdoses. Brand new report out this week estimates that more than 200,000 other drug users in British Columbia remain at risk of death. Why, the government says, and public health authorities say, it's because the drug supply on the street, the illegal drugs, are toxic. They're poison. They're killing people. The answer to this, safe supply of drugs. You give drug users lab-tested, quality-controlled drugs. If they're going to use drugs anyway, why not give them so-called safe supply of drugs? They got Tom Wolf standing by to discuss. Let's have a listen to British Columbia's chief coroner here, Lisa LaPointe, speaking about this in the last few days she argues safe supply of drugs should be expanded in british columbia let's listen we know that safer supply is controversial Um, as i said in my remarks for some people it feels contradictory why would we provide drugs to people who are already experiencing harm some drugs 
Um, what our expert panels have told us is that many of the harms that people are experiencing are because the drugs are toxic. Drugs are toxic. The drugs that are available on the street. This panel now calling for an expansion of safe supply, even without a doctor's prescription. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Tom Wolf. Tom is an addiction recovery advocate. He's a director of West Coast Initiatives Foundation for Drug Policy Solutions. Tom is based in San Francisco. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Tom, thank you for coming on today. Good morning, Mike. It's my pleasure to be here once again. I, I appreciate it a lot. Let's let's quickly go over your personal story, Tom, because it's so compelling. Because you were a former addict yourself, right? You were homeless at one point, correct? That's right. Uh, in 2018, I uh, I was homeless for about six months on the streets of San Francisco, struggling with heroin and fentanyl addiction. Uh, and my addiction is what actually led to my homelessness, to being on the street. So now I just advocate for you know pragmatic, realistic solutions to this uh, drug crisis and. You know, San Francisco and Vancouver kind of mirror each other in the crisis that we're facing. We've had 620 overdose deaths this year in San Francisco alone. So we're no stranger to this crisis either. Yeah, no, that is a very similar situation. I know you're following very closely what, what's happening here in British Columbia. Let's talk about safe supply, Tom. Now, we just heard from British Columbia's chief coroner there. The reason so many people are dying is the drugs on the street, the illegal drug supply, is toxic. This is what's killing people. Does that, I, I don't think that's in dispute. Does, so doesn't it make sense to give people the safe supply drugs? What do you think of that idea? Well, it doesn't make sense, and here's why. It, it, if you, you, know, you think about it, when you first hear it, it sounds like, okay, that's a reasonable plan, but here's what happens. People are given out the safe supply of drugs, which is a weaker version of the fentanyl that they're already using on the street. So what do they do with those drugs? They either take them to supplement their existing fentanyl use, so now they're using both drugs, or they sell the safe supply on the street so that they can get money to purchase fentanyl. So the thing, this whole idea that giving out safe supply is somehow gonna mitigate the crisis, well, it's not, because at the end of the day, the cartels who are fueling the illicit fentanyl that's coming into the United States and Canada aren't just going to pivot and start selling avocados and stop selling fentanyl, are they? And nobody's bothered to go down to Mexico and ask the Sinaloa cartel if they're going to stop selling fentanyl because, of course, they're not going to. It is their cash cow. So this really, what this is, is it sounds altruistic. It sounds like mm -hmm. you're being compassionate, but all that we're doing is just enabling more use and really increasing the danger. Oh, okay, so there's been a lot of reporting to this effect here in British Columbia as well. The so-called... Uh, diversion of these drugs uh, maybe being sold to to new drug users of safe supply but of course the the chief coroner and other public health officials here in british columbia will say that that may be happening but it's not as big as people think that this actually really is saving people's lives let me play a clip here for you tom get your thoughts dr mark tyndall my safe society listen to him listen to him here make the case for safe supply let's listen People say, well, all you're doing is preventing people from dying and you're not really addressing all their other problems. My experience and the idea of safe supply, if you can um, interrupt the, the grind that people go through to get their illegal drugs every day, it changes their lives dramatically. And they can work on, you know, housing and um, social, other social things and their health if they don't have to get up every morning 
and go and search for illegal drugs. Okay, Dr. Mark Tyndall there, he's been a guest on the show. Tom Wolf, you're not buying that? No, because it's, it's about the drug too. So if you want to give out safe supply of opioids, give out Suboxone or give out Methadone. But giving out hydromorphone tablets uh, or Dilaudid uh, is, is neither one of those things. It's actually stronger than both of those things. And you still don't function at a very high level. Think of it like this. I got addicted to a safe supply, a prescription of oxycodone. And most mm. people, they when they start using drugs, they don't just go straight to the hard stuff. It's a progressive disease. It's a gradual thing where you start off with maybe Percocets or Vicodins, and then you graduate to oxycodone and then to hydromorphone, and then you go to fentanyl. So what we're doing is we're introducing this class of drugs into this market that's just supposed to be for people that already use drugs, but now they want to make it so that you can access it without a prescription. That means that a whole variety of people can have access to it, including first-time users. And so what you're doing is you're setting the table for a whole new generation of people to potentially get addicted to these drugs. And if you recall what happened in the United States in the 1990s with pain clinics and the overprescribing of prescription opioids, that's how this whole crisis really came to be. Because over the 10 or 15 years that we did that in the United States, 20 million people got addicted to a safe supply of Oxycontin. Speaking of Tom Wolf, Tom is an addiction recovery advocate. And as you can tell, he's, he's not, he's critical of the safe supply program we have here in British Columbia. There are calls to expand it greatly. Let me play another clip here for you, Tom, for your thoughts. Jennifer Charlesworth, British Columbia's independent advocate for children and youth. She has called for uh, allowing supervised injection sites and drug consumption sites to be uh, made available to underage drug users. She also makes it, listen to this clip, she makes the case here for expanding safe supply to younger people without a prescription. Let's listen. We have to be open to the notion of a prescribed safer supply and, frankly, a non-prescribed safer supply. For some young people, they're not going to go to a pharmacist. They don't have access to the doctor. Okay, so she argues that some young people are already addicted to these dangerous drugs. Tom, nobody, nobody nobody can deny that. So she says, look, we need to expand safe supply. Your thoughts, Tom? <laughs> uh, it's hard for me not to laugh. Uh, look, I understand what they're trying to do, but you have to also understand that this is a very radical interpretation of harm reduction. Okay, if you are a parent, Mike, you know I have kids. Uh, would you, as a parent, want to intervene and work on educating and preventing your child from falling into addiction in the first place, or if they did fall into addiction, wouldn't you want to try to pull them out of that as a parent when you think about your children? So now what your government is actually saying is, you know what, we shouldn't even bother to do that or let's take the focus off of that and put it over here on actually making it easier for young people to access drugs and do them. Well, to be fair to the the government and our public health officials here, they'll say, well, we need all of it, right? So they're not saying it's only safe supply. They say, look, we need recovery and treatment options as well. The the one problem that I keep hearing, Tom, is that... uh, there are long waiting lists to get into detox or long waiting lists to get into drug addiction therapy and treatments that that has not been expanded rapidly the way it's needed. Like they're talking about this rapid expansion of safe supply. Your thoughts. Well, that's the, that you, that's a perfect point that you're making. It's like, look, we're spending all this time and money and attention on figuring out ways to make drugs more accessible to people instead of taking all of those efforts and all of that money 
and putting it into investing in drug treatment and expanding recovery options across the board and creating what they call a continuum of care and having treatment on demand for people. And you can insert certain aspects of harm reduction within that full continuum of care. But what we're doing is we're just cutting all of that out and just cutting to the end where we're just basically giving up on recovery because we're not investing in it. And we're saying, well, since there's no recovery options, let's just give people more drugs to use. And because those drugs are prescription strength, it's going to be safer. Well, you know, again, the United States' experience with this has been very different than what Canada may have experienced. We, uh, you know, again, in the 1990s, we had over 20 million people get addicted to a safe supply of OxyContin. I cannot stress that enough that if you really want to solve this crisis, you need to put the focus squarely on recovery and increasing treatment options for people. And it's just unfortunate to hear doctors and prominent advocates in Canada and Vancouver and British Columbia uh, spending, again, all this time and effort on figuring out ways to make it easier for people to access drugs instead of figuring out ways to make it easier for people to access drug treatment. Talking about safe supply of drugs in the face of the overdose death crisis, should safe supply of lab-tested drugs be expanded in British Columbia? My guest is Tom Wolf, Foundation for Drug Policy Solutions. Colin in Nanaimo. Hey, Colin. Hey, hey, Mike. Yeah, I just uh, wanted to say, I mean, I live right up the street from uh, the AVI clinic that's administering this enhanced harm reduction program through the SAFER initiative. And we know that there are a lot of underage um, youth that are getting access to these drugs by diversion. We see it all the time in our neighborhood. Um, our public servants are trying to downplay and, and try to sweep this under the rug. It is a massive problem in, in Nanaimo high schools. We know that kids are buying dillies, buying DH and hydrom- whatever they want to, whatever they call them. Like this is, this is happening so often now that it really is dragging kids into addiction to, to heroin and then to fentanyl. And we need well, our public servants to take it, take it seriously. How do you know that, though? I mean, you say you're seeing this. What, what do you see exactly? Colin. On the streets. Yeah. yeah, we see kids doing the drugs. We see kids buying the drugs from, from, uh, from adults. And we've yeah. even seen uh, a, a girl, 15 years old, that got arrested for selling oxys and dillies outside the pharmacy. We, we have um, a journalists that are coming to town. This, uh, Adam Zivo has done journalism on this, uh, talking to youth. Like, this is not something that's, that, that can be swept under the rug. It is a huge okay. problem. People need to get, yeah, wake up. Colin, thank, thank you for the call. Okay, Tom, you heard him refer to these drugs as dillies, which is kind of the street lingo for Dilaudid, which is the, the, uh, the safe drug here in British Columbia. What, what are your opinions on that particular drug, Dilaudid? Well, so Dilaudid is a very strong opioid. Okay, so it's, uh, it's not as strong as illicit fentanyl, of course. And, that's, right. that's, and so what it is is that if you're using drugs on the street already, and you get given a supply of dilaudid at, to use as an alternative to fentanyl, you would have to take five to 10 times as many dilaudids as you would as one dose of fentanyl to equal the two together. So this is the problem with people that used to use heroin that now use fentanyl. There's no going back to heroin once you're on fentanyl because fentanyl is 10 to 100 times stronger than heroin or morphine. So they're giving out a drug that's actually weaker 
and doesn't do the job of getting someone well when they're in withdrawal from addiction from fentanyl. So what do they do? They turn around and they sell it on the street. And, mm. you know, that's not the first time I've heard about Dillies being sold in schools. I was at a conference last year in Calgary and I was sitting at a table with a doctor from Vancouver who was already telling me back then that Dillies are showing up in junior high schools uh, in Vancouver and being sold for a dollar, for a dollar. Yeah. And so if you're a kid and you've got a dollar, you can scrounge up a dollar or a $2 coin in your pocket. You can buy a couple of those and you're off to the races. And once you start using that regularly, you are yeah. addicted. And as your tolerance builds, you want to switch to the stronger stuff. And that stronger stuff is fentanyl. Let's squeeze in one more call here. Mark in Mission. Mark, you got 30 seconds here. Okay, go ahead. Okay, my big concern is uh, in all these things, all these remedies of safe drugs and all this, they never talk about the future generation, the five-year-olds. Where do we plan to be 10 years from now for supplying safe drugs, you know, destigmatizing what it is to be a drug addict and all these things? It, my grandchildren are the ones who are going to suffer for these policies being implemented today. Okay, well, th- thank you for that call, Mark. We got 30 seconds left here. Tom, your, your final thoughts. Go ahead. Look, this crisis isn't going away anytime soon. And while I agree we need a variety of different public health approaches, what we really need to focus on is getting people off of the drugs. The ultimate, the ultimate version of harm reduction is to stop, is to stop using. So we need to create opportunities for people to be able to stop using. And that includes intervention. Tom, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.